0: Hello and welcome to the Informed Traveller Podcast, part of the Informed Traveller Radio Show, which is heard each week on Chorus Radio. It's a travel podcast where our goal is to help you become a more informed traveller. And I'm your host, Randy Sharman. And even though we are halfway through summer or more than halfway, it never hurts to talk about water safety, whether you're on the water or in it. So in a few moments, we'll get some water safety tips from the folks at the Lifesaving Society. We've also got a bit of a European theme going on this week as we'll visit the recently reopened and renovated Batoya Hotel Mediterraneo in Rome, Italy. And then later, we'll get some insight into visiting the province of Alentejo in Portugal. But as I mentioned, we're going to start things out talking about water safety. With the warm temperatures this summer, a lot of people are heading to the lakes and rivers and oceans to cool off and it never hurts to review a few water safety tips. So joining us now to help us out is Dale Miller. He is the Executive Director of the BC Yukon Branch of the Life Saving Society. Their website is lifesaving.bc.ca. Hi, Dale. Well, good afternoon, Randy. Tell me uh, just briefly about what the Life Saving Society is and what you do.
1: Sure. So many will know us as Royal Life Saving Society. We're part of the Commonwealth Organization, completely committed to the prevention of drowning and aquatic related injuries. So that is our, our objective, and uh, the organization's been around for over 100 years and, and
0: still doing the same work uh, that many years later. Well, we probably should have done this segment uh, a few months ago at the start of the summer season, but I guess no matter what, there, it's always good to, to review some of the tips and, and the and the things that you have, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's never too late. I mean, we've we've got we're in the middle of the summer here now and uh and in fact we do see um a higher number of drownings in late summer. I think uh, whether people are are getting complacent about being around the water or whatever, it might be. It seems that uh we do see many drownings in August across Canada.
0: Is that sort of uh, one of the problems either people have uh, they're overconfident in their abilities, whether they're in the water or on the water. And they underestimate, I guess, the uh, the strength of water or what it can do.
1: Yeah, you, you've you hit it on the head. Uh, they, they underestimate both their own abilities and the force of Mother Nature when it comes to water. And uh, it's interesting. I just uh, read a report that uh, came out very recently that talked about the fact that those who uh, self-identify as weak swimmers are more wary uh, of the dangers of drowning, whereas those who self-identify as strong swimmers, uh, as you say, may be overconfident and uh, and, uh, get into trouble a little bit easier.
0: Well I would self-identify as being a weak swimmer, so I'm one of those people. <laughs> Let's talk yeah. about I guess it's what are some of the common things that that's one of them. but is there like a checklist in your mind you can kind of go through whether you're in a boat or by the lake or a river or, or the ocean? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean it's uh, certainly the, the most common cause of, of drownings is boat related. And so of course wearing that life jacket or personal flotation device P- PFD uh is is critical. Uh we I mean it's it would be obvious to anyone that uh, the majority of those who drown in in boat related incidents are not wearing a life jacket or PFD. So so that is definitely one of the uh, Main preventative uh, measures that that we enforce every year, and, and unfortunately again, every year we see this statistic whereby at least a third of those uh, drownings are boat related, so that 's definitely a big one. Mm-hmm. The other ones uh, would include things like cold water uh, you know people are maybe not uh, ready for the shock of the cold water when they either jump in voluntarily or involuntary, involuntarily get uh, dumped into the water from a boat capsizing or whatever it might be. So so cold water is, is definitely a factor, and, and not only in rivers and oceans, but some of the lakes, too, even in midsummer, uh, they are still very cold, uh, glacier-fed, and, uh, and definitely a factor there. When we go to lakes, it's things like drop-offs, hidden rocks and trees under the surface, uh, those kinds of things. And, and even, uh, you know, in rivers especially, the, the currents, the force of the water. Mm-hmm. And even if someone were, uh, you know, traversing across a, a, cr- a fast-running creek, the waters may be only knee-deep, the force of that water can often uh, knock them off their feet and, and send them down downstream. So those are some of the, the causes of drownings every year in, in Canada.
0: Uh, and I, I guess I get that water is water, but you mentioned some of the things to look out for and the difference between a lake or a river or by, beside the ocean. Now, uh, there's a lot of people that go to the ocean over the winter in places in the warmer climates, the Caribbean and Mexico, and so we may not be used to being by the ocean. What about uh, some tips about just being by the beach, not being on a boat or anything like that that we should be looking out for?
1: Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's certainly the uh, the current uh, factor and, and anytime uh, you're in ocean, there's potential for tidal changes and of course that's going to create a, a bit of a current. There's also the, the risk of riptides and, and a lot of people are not familiar with riptides. This is something that can easily take a strong swimmer uh, well past where they had intended to go from shore. Um, now, the, the best thing to do there, of course, is to not panic, and that's the, the same with any kind of, of drowning situation. Try to uh, keep your calm and, and figure out exactly what you're going to do. Uh, let the rip tide uh, uh, take you, but also uh, try to. Uh, swim laterally back toward shore and out of the riptide. So there's a few precautions there, and uh, and of course the uh, the ongoing uh, concern about cold water as well. Anything I might have missed that you might want to add? One of the other factors, of course, is alcohol and boating, and uh, and alcohol and swimming too. Of course, we know that uh, the alcohol will. Uh, affect uh, judgment and and common sense and of course increase that uh, bravado effect Uh, and that's when uh, people feel a little bit braver than they should and uh, underestimate uh, the, uh, causes of drowning. And in fact, the study i had mentioned earlier, uh, one of the comments from one of the people interviewed said, uh, that, uh, they never thought that about drowning, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's that kind of a, of an attitude of it won't happen to me. And I'm sure that, you know, the, the 450 or so people who drown in Canada each year, uh, that's exactly what they thought as they went to the water that day, is it won't happen to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, things can change very quickly. Mm-hmm.
0: Lots of uh, great tips and advice. You can find uh, more information on the Lifesaving Society of BC and Yukon uh, at lifesaving.bc.ca. And Dale Miller is the Executive Director of the BC-Yukon branch of the Lifesaving Society. I appreciate your time, Dale. Thank you so much. Thank you, Randy. So each week in our podcast, we try to focus on a hotel spotlight. So this week, we are going to travel all the way to Rome, Italy, to the newly reopened and renovated Batoia Hotel Mediterrario. And we're very pleased to have join us now from Rome, Italy, Maurizio Batoia. He is the president of Batoia Hotels. Their website is BatoiaHotels.it. Hello, Maurizio. Hello. Tell me the story of the Batoya Hotel chain. Well, uh, it's a, a story that started about
2: 150 years ago. Um, my great-great-grandfather was uh, a merchant, a wine merchant from uh, the north of Italy, where we still have our family home in our home village. And um, he was a younger son, so he had to make his way in the world, and he came to Rome, where we had some property and started dealing in, in wine in oil and grain. And, uh, at one point bought the ground floor and the cellars of the hotel Massimo d'Azeglio, which is our oldest hotel. That was in 1875. And, uh, uh, it was right across from the railroad station. And, uh, he decided to transform the building in a, in a hotel. And that's how it all started. And, uh, uh after that we bought um other properties uh amongst which the what became later the hotel mediterraneo um so this is how it started mm, and uh, uh the being next to the railroad station is just uh, as much as an opportunity as it was in 1875
0: Uh, That's a pretty amazing story. You've been around a long, long time. You've probably seen a lot of things happening uh, throughout those decades. Tell me what the last uh, 18 months has been like for you, though, and for the hotel industry in Italy in general.
2: Well, uh, you can imagine it's been extremely bad. Um, Most hotels in Rome have closed, and uh, they've been reopening. Some of them are reopening now, but I think a lot of them will not reopen at all because uh, the, the, the crisis has been so bad that uh, a lot of, you know, quite a number of hotels will not survive. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas uh, this has hit uh, the art cities, especially, uh, I mean, Rome, Florence, uh, uh, Naples, Venice, whereas uh, the industry on the beaches and on the mountains has been doing pretty well in the end. Uh, but the art cities have been really badly hit. Um, uh, also, because whereas the, <clears throat> the the beaches have been, um, you know, are full of Italians, uh, the 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 foreigners have not been coming. And uh, at least in Rome, 80% of the, of guests in in hotels are foreigners.
0: Uh, well, I was going to ask how much you rely on international visit- visitors. So uh, obviously, well, Rome was a very popular spot. I've never been. So what's Rome like today, right, as we speak?
2: Um, well, uh, it's uh, it, it's starting to, to, to normalize because um, uh, restaurants are open, and a lot of restaurants have now moved uh, their tables on the street, which is actually quite pleasant in the summer. And uh, I I hope it will it will stay that way it, because uh, it's uh, it's very pleasant to eat uh, outside. Most um, uh, I would say that most hotels um, are starting to reopen, but haven't reopened yet. The city is not very crowded, so it's actually quite a pleasant place
0: to be now uh, <laughs> in this moment. Well, that's the flip side, right? It's if not, you if you um, can travel and if you can make it there, uh, this is a good time to go. It's less crowded, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Tell me about the Hotel Mediterraneo now. I understand it's uh, gone gone through some renovations, and the location sounds like it's perfect.
2: Well, yes, it is a very a very good location because it's right across from the railroad station, and uh, uh, rail travel as as increased tremendously in the past years because it's with the fast trains, it's now more practical to move by train than by aeroplane. The hotel is uh, well, uh, has been listed uh, amongst the historic buildings of Rome and uh, the superintendent to the fine arts has called it the Pompeii of the 30s because it was built in uh, 1938 for the 1942 World Fair, which obviously didn't take place in Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've been doing is uh, restoring the, the the principal rooms on the ground floor, because of course we can't change them. But the rooms have been uh, updated, renovated, uh, in some cases uh, enlarged, uh, and uh, what we've tried to do is to. Uh, Give them a contemporary feel, but keeping the, the the 1930s vintage furniture that was actually designed for the hotel. And uh, I think it's it's working, and people like that. Um, the mixture between uh, a certain uh, contemporary feel in colors and of course, uh, the amenities and all that, and uh, the vintage furniture.
0: How many rooms do you have, and and, and just what's it like to stay there? Like, what, what kind of reaction do you get from your guests?
2: Well, we have about uh, almost 500 rooms, and, uh, well, I can say that a lot of our guests are repeaters, so to speak, so evidently they like us, <laughs> and uh, we've got a very good restaurant. In fact, uh, the, when... Uh, my great-great-grandfather um, bought the building, the hotel, the the restaurant was already there, and uh, my cousin Stefania uh, really you know takes very good care of the restaurant and and uh, of the rooms. So it's uh, you know very much still a family business. Um, so there is a certain uh, how can I say personal touch. Our uh, our staff. Uh, often is uh, very friendly with with guests that they've known for years. And uh, so we're accustomed to welcoming guests in a special way.
0: Well, then I imagine the, the location, you're right in the heart of Rome, so I really don't have to uh, travel very far to see some of the sights and some of the uh, experiences of Rome, do I?
2: No, not, not really. And, and not only that, but uh, an area right next to us, the Monti, area is now the very fashionable area so you've got lots of bars and restaurants and things there or within 10 minutes or 15 minutes walk from our hotels and we're on the cross of the two main uh, underground lines so it's it's you know very very easy to get around rome from our place apart from the fact that we are in the center of rome um it's actually you know quite it's you know, quite practical to move by public for transportation.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. So, uh, is Italy welcoming Canadians right now? If I'm a vaccinated Canadian, I'm good to go to visit Italy, aren't I? Well, yes,
2: uh, and I must say that vaccines are working because uh, I can, you know, even this Delta variant, which has come, is not particularly. Uh, has it been particularly vicious? And every and people who are vaccinated are uh, don't really are not really very vulnerable to it. So once you've got your vaccine, uh, uh, your but I think you can really do whatever you like.
0: Well, yeah, if people are interested, you just go on the Italian government website, italia.it, and there's it kind of explains there what forms you need. And pretty yes, much if you are if you're got the double dose of a vaccine and at least 14 days beforehand, you're pretty much welcome and free to go around Italy as you like, right? Yes, yes, that's right, yes. Uh, anything yes, I've it's, missed it's you you'd like to, have, to add? Yes.
2: That just to please come, because we really want you and need you.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like a fabulous place. I mean, the location can't be any better right in the heart of Rome. It's uh, You can find more information on the uh, Batoya Hotels website, BatoiaHotels.it, and Maurizio Batoya is the president of Batoia Hotels. So it was a real pleasure chatting with you, uh, Maurizio. Well, thank you very much, and uh, hope to see you in Rome. So Portugal is on your bucket list of places to visit. You'll be glad to know that the Portuguese government is looking to lift all COVID restrictions in Portugal by October. And one area to look at when visiting Portugal is the Alentejo area. So here to tell us about that area, of Portugal is Jaime Samos. He's a travel expert on Portugal. The website for the province of Alentejo is visitalentejo.pt. Hi, Jaime. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, you're of Portugal descent, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask this question: How often have you been to Portugal? Well, before COVID,
3: uh, I would go for at least once a year. Um, and as a kid, I would spend my summers there.
0: Nice. Let's talk about what's happening in Portugal now and what they expect to happen in October when it comes to reopening and uh, all the restrictions or the lifting of restrictions before we get into the uh, province of Alentejo.
3: Sure. So currently, uh, Portugal is emerging uh, from a series of restrictions aimed at limiting the spread of COVID-19. And much like Canada, the Portuguese government took things very seriously and has had rolling restrictions based on the amount of people uh, showing infections as per percentage of the population. Um, and unfortunately, Portugal got hit a little hard a little bit early uh, by the Delta variant, uh, which led to rolling back a few things. But the good news is I was just there and people take this very seriously. So you see, uh, you know, everyone indoors wears a mask. Uh, everybody outside on the street wears a mask. If you go into a restaurant, you can dine indoors, but the server will wear a mask. And if you have to get up from the table to use the, the washer or what have you. You have to wear a mask as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: the amount of people in stores is limited, so you know there are some really good safety precautions. And as a result, they've really brought a uh, number of infections uh, under control. As a result, uh, because now the number of or the percentage of people vaccinated has risen uh, significantly, uh, in fact, surpassed that in the U.S. Uh, they're on track to have 80 percent of the population fully vaccinated uh, by late this summer, early this fall, which means that by October. Pretty much every current restriction will be eased and people will be able to travel and interact uh, through Portugal, you know, as they have in the past. Obviously, you know, there'll still be a few things in place for, for safety, depending on, on infection rates. But for the mm-hmm. most part, uh, it should be relatively easy to go to in Portugal. And, you know, again, those exceptions might be that they may still continue to ask for a PCR test uh, before you board an aircraft, things like that.
0: Mm hmm. Well, I think that uh, Portugal is uh, becoming very popular. I don't know how many people you know ask about Portugal and and have been to Portugal. In particular, they look at uh, long stays. So when they go to Portugal, they're looking at staying for more than you know just a week or something like that.
3: Yeah, if you're going to travel all that way, uh, you know you have nonstop flights from from Toronto, for example. But you've got to get to Toronto, so you're looking at a, you know a, a relatively you know significant amount of travel, and You want to at least stay there for more than a week and. Yeah, I can tell you the Portugal in the in the winter has a relatively mild climate and parts of it are are quite pleasant. You know, it's not exactly beach weather, but you can go and walk on the beach and have a have a picnic and you know, be outdoors without a without a jacket. Uh, you know, temperatures uh, can range in the southern half of the country uh, in in February anywhere from you know anywhere from 17 to 20 degrees uh, Celsius or mid 60s Fahrenheit.
0: Nice. Well, let's talk about the area that you just uh, returned from the Alentejo area of uh, Portugal. Where is it? How do I get there? What do you like about it?
3: Yeah, that's a great question because you know, when people think of Portugal, you know, they, they, they first they think of Lisbon, which is a terrific city. It's a wonderful place. And it is the gateway uh, where most flights uh, you know, from Montreal and Toronto go in directly. Uh, but you know, there's more to Portugal than just Lisbon. And I think for people who have already been there or people who want to go there and experience a more rural stay, the Alentejo is an easy option. So Alentejo, it comes from Lane du Tejou, or beyond the Tejo. And so it's everything pretty much from the, the very fertile uh, lands of the River Tejo, which cuts the country in half and flows to the ocean at Lisbon, to the mountains of the Algarve in the south. It's actually 30% of the whole country, and yet it has less than uh, 600,000 inhabitants. So 30% of the whole country, but a very, very small population. Um, it is a unique place. It is, uh, it, as many people would think, a, a country within a country. Like you think of Tuscany, think of the Elevate Israel. So you've got a culture, architecture, historical heritage, ways of doing things, cooking. There's very, very specific to the region. And those, those, those specific tendencies are great. And it's what makes it so welcoming. They're it's a welcoming people with a very different outlook on life. I like to say that they often remember something that the rest of us have forgotten uh, but really makes the the place so special. It's the landscape, um, and so you're looking at miles and miles and miles of montados, and these montados are cork forests. And and if you've never been to a cork forest, it's hard to describe. It's not a thick pine forest. It's not a densely pine. It's, it's kind of rolling plains and hills with beautiful cork trees spread. I don't know, uh, you know, 10, 15 feet apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what they've done is this landscape, because it's so old and so protected by law, you have dozens of different types of creatures and plants and birds that thrive within it. And where you don't see cork forests, you see vineyards uh, and you see olive groves. So it's a, it's a really special landscape, very different from the rest of Portugal. And then, of course, it meets the ocean. Uh, and you've got a few hundred miles of a beautiful Preserve beachfronts. So dunes, sandy beaches, clean Atlantic waters, but no high rises, no development. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very special. So if you're looking for a place to get away, say in February, when temperatures can get a little bit chilly, Yontage is a wonderful option because you can go cycling, you can go hiking, uh, you can walk uh, on, on hiking trails for miles and miles and see very few people, but experience just breathtaking landscapes. And small towns and cities that have uh, a unique heritage. For example, the main city uh, in the Alentejo is a city called Evora, E-V-O-R-A. And it's got some things that you just don't find other places. In Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, like a standing Roman second century temple, and one of the largest medieval cathedrals in all of Portugal, and they're side by side. Wow. Uh, you know, the, the whole city, and it's not a big city, it's about 57,000 people, is within its original medieval walls. And those walls uh, have all been restored, but many of them have been now built or wrapped around with parks, with things like peacocks and medieval ruins. It's a great city to explore, and it's, it's seen a really flourishing uh, restaurant scene. We were just there, and we ate at this restaurant right downtown called Tua Madre, and this is an Italian chef who's married a Portuguese woman, <laughs> so he's brought this wonderful Italian approach to cooking, but all of his ingredients come within 30 kilometers of the restaurant, so he's channeling local food with an Italian perspective and it is just fantastic. It's better than anything I've had in a very long time. So it's one, a place of change, and it's a place of traditions. When the two meet, you get some very special stuff.
0: Well, it does look fantastic. Again, I'm looking on the website. Uh, visit alentejo.pt or .com. Uh, how much Portuguese do I need to know, though, <laughs> when I'm traveling that's through there? Thing. No,
3: that's, that's a really good question. because Portuguese, let's be honest, it's a hard language. You know, If you speak English or you speak French or Spanish, uh, not only will you be able to get by, but you'll find that many people do speak English. Most people under 40 are conversant in English and understand it. But the the real nice thing is um, the people of El are very welcoming. They're happy to have you there, and it, you often will feel like you can't do anything wrong because a couple words in Portuguese and, you know, a little English from somebody, you'll get by, you'll have a conversation. People really want to help you. We were um, in the town of Acheol, my wife and I and our two boys looking for this restaurant that had been recommended to us. And I couldn't find it, you know, this is a medieval town with winding streets. I couldn't make my phone get me to the place I could walk there. And this older gentleman was walking by, you know, I speak Portuguese, but I said to him in Portuguese, I'm trying to find this restaurant. Can you help me? And instead of saying, oh, you go this way, you go that way, he said, oh, well, I'm kind of walking in that direction. Why don't you follow me and I'll take you there? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of thing that you see happening time and time again. People are very happy to, to share their world, share their culture, with you, and they're glad to have you there. Mm-hmm. They're very friendly. And that, and that makes any language barrier not much of a barrier, because there's a warmth that overshadows that.
0: Even though, as I said, most young people speak English very well. Uh, tell me about uh, some of the foods I've got to try. So the food of the Alentejo
3: is not what you would get in Lisbon. It's very different, and it's all very local, and it's all very seasonal. For example, if you were to go in the spring, uh, you would have a lot of lamb, because lamb is a big spring dish. In the summer, uh, there's, there's different types of pork, uh, but they have their own pork, which is called a porco preto, or it's a it's like black pig, cause of the, the, the pig named of it. And this is a pig which it's also served, uh, pork that's served in Spain as well, so it's very famous for its cured ham. But in the summer, you get a lot of that. Uh, you get migas, which is a very common accompaniment to any meal, which is not unlike a stuffing, but it's served with very different ingredients like asparagus or coriander. Which is a big dominant ingredient in Alentejo cooking, uh, coriander. The rest of Portugal doesn't like coriander. In fact, most people from the north would just walk a mile not to eat it. <laughs> but in the south, in the Alentejo, it is one of the, the dominant uh, flavors of their food. Coriander and garlic, uh, and olive oil are are kind of like a, a holy trinity of Alentejo cooking. So there's wonderful fresh grilled fish on the coast. Uh, there's all kinds of fantastic fresh meats on the interior. And then really cool and different uh, vegetables that are served in a a unique perspective, because this was the part of Portugal that for the longest period of time was ruled by North Africans. So that's where the coriander came from. And that's where uh, different types of like pressure pot cooking comes from. So it's it's quite a different approach. But you throw into that really, really good local wines, wonderful, very sweet desserts, and excellent coffee. And you get a place that has a real uh, culinary basis from... And it's affordable because mm-hmm. you're looking at, you, know, you could two people can go out to dinner um, and spend you know, less than $40 Canadian easily.
0: Nice. Uh, we only have about a minute, but how easy it is to get, to get around, to get to all these places? So you have options. I mean, you could
3: you could do it by bike. There's wonderful bike trails. There's fantastic hiking trails with support along the way. Uh, the, the, the the Vincentine Coast, or the Costa Vincentina, has a couple hundred miles of, of trails, two distinct trails, one heritage, one fishing. But if you're driving, that's an easy way to get around. The roads are excellent. Uh, there's a good network of motorways that run from Lisbon throughout the province, and it's just less than an hour away. And there's some older, uh, more historic roads that go through small towns and villages. But there's also an excellent network of rail service. There's three major rail lines that run through the Alentejo from Lisbon. So you have your options. You could also mix and match or work with the tour operators to set up a special hiking or cycling vacation. Uh, but as I said, you know, to go away in March or February... You're going to get nice weather, um, not as much rain as you would elsewhere in Portugal, and the ability to hike, to be outdoors, to go to the beach, but do so in a way uh, that is in proportion to, I think, the way people want to travel now. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know, you'll know you're someplace special. You'll know you're someplace
0: different. Well, it all That's sounds really, uh, really fantastic. And now I want to go. James <laughs> Samos is the uh, travel expert of Portugal, as you can tell he knows a lot uh, the website uh, for the area of Alentejo is visitalentejo.pt or .com uh, it was fun chatting with. we could go on forever, James but uh, time is our enemy we'll have to have you back uh, in the future
3: I would love to, thank you so much it was great to, to chat and I would encourage uh, families or couples anyone who wants to get away it is a nice, safe, unique um, really special part of the world the more people are discovering Not too many people, which
0: makes it a fun experience. And that is this week's Informed Traveler podcast. Remember, this is the podcast version of the Informed Traveler radio show, heard each week on Chorus Radio. You can find more information on the show at our website at theinformedtraveler.ca. So thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. And if you want to drop me a line, my email is randy at theinformedtraveler.ca. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash informedtraveler. Or you can follow me on Twitter at informedtraveler.